it helped me understand that the consumers call the shots, not me. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 54, and today's guest is Don Robertson. Don has over 30 years of experience at the executive management level in leadership and collaborative problem-solving frequently working directly with boards of private or public companies domestically and internationally in order to drive growth, improve weak revenue, and scale startups for consumer brands while acting as president or executive officer of a number of consumer brands. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today, I'm joined by Don Robertson. Don is currently the CEO of a company called On Campus Marketing, OCM. OCM is the premier e-commerce site for college students and their families. OCM's fun, modern, and functional university-approved merchandise transforms dorms and off-campus rooms to a home away from home. OCM serves over 900 campuses nationwide. Don is a global business leader of major retailers encompassing vertical specialty retailers, department stores, and wholesale operations at the executive management level with strong restructuring and turnaround experience. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure, and uh, uh, we're recording this in the early part of March uh, 2022. Uh, how are you uh, doing? Uh, we're hopefully coming out of our pandemic. Well, we hope so, too. Being in the college space, as you might guess, 2020, only 4% of all college students went back to school. 2021, more went back, but it took a while. But we believe that in 2022, it's going to go back to whatever normal is, and they'll all sign up by May 1st. Okay, well, that's uh, so. I guess we'll, we'll talk about OCM, but I guess you're getting into your Christmas season. We are getting into Christmas. It is a pre-planning time. We go into lockdown about April 15th, and then we are as if it's November, December in June, July, and August. So it's a very interesting business and a very different time of the year than most retailers. Yeah, and we'll come back and get some more details on that. But um, we like to start the show. Um, people that listen seem to uh, uh, like the fact that we get out, we tease out of our guests, you know, kind of their backstory, their first story, um, and perhaps think back to, you know, as you were you know, growing up, anything that might have foreshadowed that you would have been, you know, the power in retail that you've turned out to be. Well, I don't know about the power in retail, but my story is kind of an interesting one. I began in retail at the age of 15 in a department store when I was in high school as a sales associate in the juniors department. I loved retail and product actually from the first moment and never looked back. And I became the CEO of that department store years later. And it was very interesting as the first buyer that I worked for was still there. So you can imagine her surprise and delight that I was a new CEO. Growing up in the South, you know, uh, it was amazing, but taught me hard work, value for money became kind of one of the key strategies 
whether luxury or opening price as I kind of grew up. And uh, it's been very interesting and kind of applying that to today. Many of us learned to live with less during pandemic. I don't know about you, but I know most of us here uh, where I live too. And just as the economy continues to be volatile, and I think back on those days and reviewing of assortment and size just continues to be as important today as it was then when I started a very long time ago. Well, that's uh, age 15, uh, so not that long ago. But you're, you went to, you grew up in the South. Um, did you go to school in the South as well? I did. I went to Auburn, and I just am finishing my MBA at Auburn. You would wonder why, but I teach at FIT, and I love it. Oh, that's great. I, and I, I had that note about FIT. Um, I, I want to come back to that one, uh, too. Uh, so Auburn's a, a great school. Um, so your first role, um, I believe, was working for Macy's. Is that true? It was. I started at Macy's the day after I graduated from Auburn. It was a pretty incredible experience. It kind of has stayed with me as my career grew. There were 45 of us who started and 32 became CEOs. So that talks a little bit about the training program and what happened. We were trained to be strong merchants. Uh, we based it on analytics even then and very customer focused, I would say. The first experience kind of helped me discover how we continue to get market share. Macy's was a big powerhouse. I lived in Atlanta and um, I'll never forget one of my mentors at that time gave me what I began to call taste the newness. He was very much about newness, always about newness. Um, and I remember it from to this day that as a CEO of a direct-to-consumer retailer now focused on college, I've learned about new. So anticipating, preparing accordingly for this constant new kind of is pretty critical in 2022, but that was his big teaching to us is about always being new. And when you, when you talk about being new, was it about just product or was it about processes and procedures and operations as well? Yeah, it was about product obviously first, but it was very much about what the consumer wanted, which was new. So I was in a fast turning junior business, which it was constantly new. And uh, it was very much about where do you want to sell? How much do you want to sell? What is the customer looking for now? Regional newness, new product, um, and new ways to go to market. Um, you know, from the early days of outdoor, which we didn't even do, you know, to all the different pieces. And I, as I think about that and, and newness and I applied today, you know, one of the things that we've done, and we'll talk about OCM, is we've really grown on marketplaces, and that was a whole new thing for OCM, and it's been a huge growth for us, but it's once again kind of thinking about that newness that I've always tried to grow on, and, um, you know, our consumers have, you know, obviously a strong propensity to work on platforms that they know with loyalty that they know, subscription businesses, which we've grown, social selling, we're doing a big way of it, but it's once again addressing what's new and what that consumer wants. And, you know, that was one of Macy's big learnings, and I think why they were successful for so terribly long time. All right. We'll talk a little bit about, you know, some of the other places that you were uh, at. One of the things that Macy's, you know, conjures up for me over, over the years is, um, you know, this concept of, it feels like years ago, you know, these national department stores, um, and you'll guide me here, were merchandising fairly similarly across the country. Um, and then, you know, over time, they got smarter about local, you know, nuance. So was it true that it was more national, you know, back then and, and then more local now? Well, it's interesting. Um, Macy's was much more local than May Department Stores, which is where I went next. Um, May Department Stores was a truly national merchandise chain. 
and um, you know what sold in Pittsburgh, sold in DC. Um, Macy's was a little bit different because what sold in New York was very different than what sold in California and what sold in Atlanta and what sold in the Midwest. So Macy's, I think, got regionalization quite well and got it earlier than others. May department stores, which I went to next, because Macy's, if you compare and contrast it to, was Macy's was very much about merchandising consumers and focus, and May was very analytical and about operations and did a great job and taught you how to really be a retailer from an analytical point of view and a financial point of view. So Macy's was much more regional than May was. May was very much a big national uh, department store. It's so interesting, you know, two big companies, you know, to the consumer, you know, it's, you know, uh, chocolate and vanilla, but really behind the scenes, their strategies were different, their features and functions were different, right? Very much so. May department stores, I started there as a store manager, a divisional merchandise manager, GMM. I was there a long, long, long time, 12 years, and actually merchandised everything in the store. And um, what they were about was very operational effectiveness. They were very financially driven. They taught me how to be a business person um, and really run a P&L and make money and be very terribly profitable. And they really were very focused on people. Um, I will tell you that I began to learn there things that, uh, not that Macy's wasn't, but May had an intense focus on people. And it really stayed with me for a very long time. Um, they believed that the success was about execution, 90% execution. They were very execution driven. And they also believed that 90% execution was people. So very much a May department store and it, you know, inspiring the team and the company. David Farrell was the chairman and he really believed in bringing people along, inspiring them, promoting them and having making them be successful. So it was a, not that Macy's didn't, but Macy's was very much a merchant driven business and May Company was very much an operational financial business. So you're making your, your move, you go from Macy's to May, and then there's a, a president, chief merchandising officer stint at Federated. Yes. So I had been in May Company a long, long time. And, you know, it's pretty interesting. In those days, there were not many women GMMs, as you might guess and less women CEOs. <laughs> I had two children, um, you know, uh, married, et cetera. And I had an opportunity to really move and go uh, take charge of a business. So it was pretty, pretty interesting and pretty fun. So I went back uh, after working for Saks Inc. a little bit. I was the CEO of the Saks Inc. department store in my first role. And then I had an opportunity to go back to Macy's and to do some different things. My career has been very much about taking on new challenges, new exciting opportunities and learning. So I had an opportunity to go back to Macy's and run several divisions of Macy's merchandising. So I led national branded products, developed private brands. I'd never done it before for Macy's. And it was a great time for growth. Macy's was growing, growing, great learnings and very different. And a great opportunity for women and a woman to lead a major division. I'm sure being a woman at that stage um, and being uh, the CEO of these businesses, was that a challenge for you? Well, it wasn't a challenge for me, but it might've been a challenge for others. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can tell you that over the years, building that support for women that do outstanding work has kind of become a mission for me because of those beginnings, because there were not many women around, frankly. And, uh, you know, it wasn't stated very loud that you were women and very few women kind of took the stand about flexible hours and return to work and all that stuff that we talk about now. So um, it became a real opportunity for me to to do that, to, to stand and do that. 
And then what happened is uh, I was asked to start Macy's.com and Bloomingdale's.com. And um, it was a start of e-commerce business for Macy's, which is a very big start. And I was really a merchant and a retailer. And uh, we started building that business. And I brought on some great, interestingly enough, women who were experts in that business to help me. And it was a, a great success. Um, Can you timestamp that for us? What, what year, you know, starting uh, Macy's.com? 1999 into 2000. We picked it off in 2000, 22 years ago, if that's yeah. imaginable. It's crazy because uh, that, that was around the first time that I had exposure to the web. I had uh, in 2000, I, I actually went to Brooks Brothers uh, as the general manager of their direct business, which was combination of catalog, uh, mostly catalog, frankly, and a very nascent web business that they had just launched. And, um, you know, that's uh, kind of how I got my digital start. So right around the same time, very interesting. And we can go down, you know, there's a great, you know, path of discussion, you know, talking about these channels that we're now developing. I know I, I dealt with lots of cannibalization conversations in businesses. You know, if people were catalog merchants or they were even, you know, physical retail um, responsible, they looked at the web as just a cannibalization of their business as opposed to a holistic, you know, giving the customer another way to shop. You must have dealt with that as well. Well, at Macy's very much. I had Terry Lundgren support, so that was a huge win. But I can remember that Macy's California and Macy's New York did not even want to put Macy's.com on their back. <laughs> so we had a lot of fighting about just putting the name Macy's.com on the back because once again, to your point, it was unknown. There were no books to read or rules to follow. There was no precedent. And it was very early days. So it was very much of a test and learn. So those kind of things, helping everybody understand that this could drive their business too and drive the brand and drive consumer interest. Um, we based it on analytics. And you'll know that from your early days as we tested and learned analytics drove the business, which is actually how it does today. I mean, the science of retail began at that early stage and it began to not outweigh the art of retail, but make people start thinking about the science of retail versus just the art. I've yeah. grown up in the art. Analytics began to make a difference. It's incredible because one of the, the groups of listeners to this podcast are a lot of early stage companies just getting their start. Most of, uh, many of them were not even born in, you know, when you and I are talking about, you know, getting involved in the beginning of, uh, of the web. So, you know, this is probably interesting for them. So you did your, your time at, at Federated and then there was a period at Meyer stores, which I, I don't think I knew Meyer. Was that domestic or did you uh, relocate for that? Yeah. Um, what happened is, is that, you know, Macy's.com and Bloomingdale's was a great training ground. I learned a ton. It was amazing. But then I had this opportunity to move to Australia and become the managing director or the CEO, it's a different term in Australia, to run the largest department store in Australia. So my husband, my two daughters, we all moved to Melbourne, Australia from this very successful future at Macy's, big chance, but to gain international experience. I really wanted to apply all that department store knowledge developed over all those years, lead a company, and uh, use some of the beginning of e-commerce, make that all work in a different country. And it was um, really a terrific, terrific opportunity. We uh, drove, it was a very traditional department store, started by families, all merged the story, the same story, but with a tremendous team. Boy, I learned a lot about team there and I can, I can talk about that a little bit. But we had an outstanding team. We drove top line, improved the margin. 
And the ultimate result was the largest sale price in the history of Australia. So we sold it to private equity. And I will tell you that it was one of the most valuable lessons. So anyone who doesn't, who's worried about taking an international thing, I would encourage you to do it. Learning how their tastes and needs are different, the consumer, how to work together with different cultures in a team, really taught me to listen. When you come from big retailers, you don't always, aren't always a good listener. And I had to really learn to listen. And I came in with all the answers and learned I really didn't know all the answers. And I had to understand that consumer more. And it taught me a lot about focusing on the consumer. The Australians, even though they speak English, have very different um, culture and very different points of view. And we won back a lot of loyal customers. We really listened to what they wanted and uh, brought, the, brought new customers in. Um, and it was great for my personal growth, for my family. My oldest daughter graduated from high school there and went on to become a successful lawyer today, but also for the company. The company's continuing today, growing, doing well. We started an e-commerce business. We updated a lot of pieces. Great team. So it was a tremendous opportunity and one that I would encourage others to do. Yeah, that's a, a great uh, point. What, was it humbling for you? I mean, you know, you had uh, some you know pretty good successes here. Now you go into an entirely new place, and you know you you've already said that there were you thought you had the answers, and maybe you didn't. So was it humbling? It was a huge humbling experience because what I what I found is that it was humbling and exciting. I'll put them together. It was very humbling because I realized that. I didn't have all the answers. I didn't know everything. And if I stopped learning, I would stop being a good retailer. And so this taught me to keep learning. And I, I really believe that's why I'm still learning today, continuing to learn and was able to get through the pandemic, frankly, because I'm not scared to ask questions, to change, to pivot. Um, and I change a lot, but um, it helped me understand that the consumers call the shots, not me and taught me kind of how to do that and just how important it was very scary but the consumer you know has always been important to our industry but i don't think i understood quite how fast their behavior changes until i went to a different country and it made us change operationally quicker if that makes sense i want to talk about change uh, you mentioned and, and it's very true you, you've changed quite a bit um, is that just part of your dna were you always you know comfortable with change, um, or is that something that you had to develop as your career developed? I had to develop it. I grew up in the same house my entire life in Birmingham, Alabama. So change was not something that I did. I came from a huge family. But as I grew, I did take a lot of chances in my career and experienced many of those changes. And um, what it taught me was about having agility. And this applies as much today in 2022, actually probably more than ever digital marketing activity has seen increased brand awareness for us and online trade throughout this lockdown. And I've had to learn to be agile. I mentor a lot of women in retail and we had women CEO calls every month to talk about this agility and how we manage it through the pandemic in 2020 and 2021 and frankly, even in 2022 and how we would build our brands, even though things have changed. So that agility that comes from changing so much I think has helped me now as much as ever, but it also helped me as I went into all these new situations to learn, to ask questions, to listen, to build teams and respect different points of view. In Australia, my team was made up of South Africans, English, Canadians, India, and Chinese, as well as Australians. So that's a lot of different cultures and points of view, and it ended up being a fantastic team 
because we listen to each other. And that's what we've had to do during the pandemic, I think. I think that consumers do remember how those favorite brands reacted during pandemic and, um, and what their propositions were, were they authentic? And I think they're well-placed for success as we go forward. I can speak for ourselves, myself as well, but I know there's others. Nike, I know, made a, one of the examples that we learned through this. They made just an example, premium subscriptions to their online training free, and it increased by 100%. So when they went back to stores, it continued with them. So that kind of detail we tried to learn from and to figure out how we could be agile to get through what we've just been through. And now what do we do next? So you've spent you know, a lot of time in, in general management, but your, your early training was in merchandising product. There's always a kind of a, a little bit of a give and take. You know, I grew up in the marketing channel. Um, you're a merchant. Um, there's always a, a give and take between the, the merchants and the marketers, you know, the age old marketers saying, you know, give me better product and I can sell it. And the merchandisers saying, look, we got great product. You're just putting it in front of the wrong people. How do you manage that internal angst? I learned a lot about that at the May department stores. Merchants don't know everything and marketers don't know everything and working together works a lot better. I'd give you my best examples when I went to Old Navy. It was a major time of growth and change. Old Navy had been a very successful brand for a long time and become a little bit stale, as many, many brands do. And we decided to develop really strong product development, new stores, and marketing wanted to develop all these new marketing campaigns. So what do we do first, second, and third, and how do we make that happen, and how do we balance that? I had a fantastic head of marketing who was very into new ideas and he led a lot of this about carving out new space for us in the marketing arena, as well as carving out new space for us in the merchandising arena. So doing both and being important in some things, having a niche, being specific, whether it was in marketing or product, and that working together worked. We updated the name from Old Navy, which is a marketer, I mean, makes you want to hyperventilate, right, to O-N, and it was a great success. Customers loved it. We were important in key categories. And he took that and made it great. Um, we took modern media. The song, Will You Wear My Sweater, was a number one success with all of our new sweater business. And he in, integrated marketing so well with merchants that had never been done before. So I would say that was, in that example, uh, a great example of working together, uh, rolling out new features as part of kind of the modern infrastructure and adding all the things that we needed to during that time. Just with respect to teams and and all, um, how, how have you been thinking about the you know the fact that the the world has changed some a lot, uh, and work from home is you know much more prevalent today. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we uh, obviously for twenty twenty we work from home one hundred percent, and then twenty twenty one began to come back, and uh, there were a lot of challenges with that and a lot of successes. We ended up finding a way that we could do it. It was very successful. We did a lot uh, more touch bases, shorter, quicker, to make people feel each other and understand that they're there. We put a lot of uh, rigor into our process and how we do process differently. We studied how we've done in the past and how we do in the future, and it worked well. And we were very flexible. Um, We were very, very flexible. As people needed space, we gave them space. Um, And then as we began to come back, we had to be more flexible, to be perfectly honest. It was, uh, we had to commit to, you know, pass of what people could do, taking children, picking up children, return to work options. Some could come and some couldn't. We made it very, very flexible. Uh, and we said it out loud. We were very open about it, very above board and said, 
we want you to come back. We're only coming three days a week still, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday every other week. But people have all wanted to come back in the end um, because they want to see each other. We have a lot of new people. We had a lot of turnover during pandemic. But I would say the biggest piece is that we built more community than we'd ever had. The community was very much about believing in each other, supporting each other. We had lots of fun on Fridays. We had a fun Friday every Friday, from yoga to cooking to making drinks to uh, trivia. We had winners. And while it was very silly, it was really a lot of fun and everybody felt more a part of the community. And now that we're back, we're doing it still. We had a big Mardi Gras happy hour on Fat Tuesday for everybody in the business. It was super fun. Quick, short, uh, but effective process improvements we've made. Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. All right, so let's talk about OCM. Uh, tell everybody uh, the basic thesis of the business. Sure, sure. Uh, OCM is at four years old. Uh, it supports students and their families in college. Um, and we move them through from the time they sign up to go away to college all the way to graduation. I will tell you, unprecedented is the pandemic. It was a very interesting time because students were all over the place. What happens when a student signs up to go away to college, uh, we have a relationship with 900 universities. We contact the students through their university and give them the opportunity to buy everything for their dorm room in one package delivered to campus easy. And we give a percent back to the schools to support the students in their freshman year whether it's residence life, it's activities, it's counseling, it's tutoring, whatever it may be. Been a great success for a long time and we have great relationship with the schools. In addition, we allow the parents to send gifts to their students throughout the year, like a subscription business, which is really, really fun. And there's food, there's games, there's opportunities. We do Halloween, Valentine's, we do a big welcome when they arrive at school. And then, um, we have a big graduation point. So when they are beginning to graduate, um, we have a huge graduation business that we continue to work with the uh, company with. We have partners. We have a storage partner. So if the student wants to store all their things and not send them home, they can put them in a storage unit in the summer. So that's a big partnership. We have a big partnership with Fanatics. So we sell t-shirts, university rugby's, you name it. Uh, so they can cheer on their favorite team or their school. And we have others, furniture. So when people move into apartments, we have a whole apartment living piece. We have a relationship with apartment groups. So we are really focused on the student and their family and everybody that the student works with. College is a pretty big step and uh, our goal is to support them as they go through it. We have also expanded big time into marketplace businesses. We have a, a terrific business at Amazon, at Walmart. We're about to announce a third. And it's been, uh, it's really been a great addition to our business because parents can buy and their favorite platforms like Amazon or, or Walmart as well in addition to us. We have over 900 mega sites, which are school sites. So you can go to your school site and buy from us. And then also you can go into your regular school site and connect to us. So it's a very niche business owned by private equity. Very interesting. I went in, I've been doing private equity turnarounds for the last few years, uh, about 10. And uh, I went in to help them rebuild their business, which, and then of course, we shut down the schools in 2020. But nonetheless, we are back. That's great. It, it, one of the challenges I, I imagine with college kids is that they move uh, each year. 
Um, how do you keep up with these kids? Well, we guarantee ours through the end of the school year, but uh, understanding the size of beds and dorms versus the size of beds and apartments, we're excited that they buy new bedding when they move out of dorms. <laughs> so we definitely keep up with them because they buy new size bedding. Dorms are always one size and then some apartments are different sizes. So we have all of their contact details and uh, we continue to offer them new ideas for their next living quarters. Uh, interesting. Um, you know, you were talking about uh, turnover. Digital talent uh, seems to be at a premium uh, nowadays. Um, how are you dealing with, you know, acquiring new talent and, and keeping the talent that you have? We um, obviously through COVID, like everybody else, lost talent and we've hired tons of new talent. It's been very interesting and very exciting. To be honest, the new ideas that they bring with them are pretty fun and pretty interesting and have really helped us as we rebuild our digital footprint. Our digital part of our business is growing quite quick. We have a very large direct mail business because of course we mail these mailers to them. But what's happened is our digital footprint has grown and grown and all the digital components, which of course you guys all know on this podcast and I know you do as well, growing very, very fast. And what's happened is our social part has really grown. We have over 1200 ambassadors in the school. So these are college students who uh, build us on social and our ambassadors for our brand. So that's been really fun. So the way that we've kept people is by innovation. We have people that have been there a long, long time and they continue to innovate and grow. And we have brand new talent come in. And the combination of that has made it interesting and exciting for people to stay. Because it's changing, it's growing. If it had continued to be the same, I think the turnover would have even continued to be harder than it was. Because during pandemic, the big trend that we all saw is that people rethought what they were doing and what they wanted to do. And uh, by continuing to grow and learn and innovate, uh, it's attracted new talent and kept some of the fantastic talent we had already. You, you talked about uh, doing mailers and, and all. Many on this podcast probably don't know this, but there is a pretty significant paper shortage uh, for direct mail and catalog uh, materials. How are you guys uh, seemingly dealing with that? Well, there's a shortage in a lot of things, but paper is one of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we bought all our paper three months early. We have uh, split our printing into two printers instead of just one print group. We outsource all printing. Obviously, we, I did away with our internal print shop when I came, which we still had. We have two outstanding printers, and they, that helped split the paper issue. And they also bought the paper three months earlier than normal, and we gave them, we had to give them projections earlier. We have to be ahead of the game. We're ahead on printing. We're ahead on production. We're ahead on photography, copy, everything, because you've got to make sure that you can get everything done. Same thing is true in sourcing, as you know. Sourcing, we bought all the goods three months early. They're all on the water and uh, Chinese New Year's over. So here we go. <laughs> all right. Well, batten down the hatches. And, and you know, with respect to, to marketing costs, you know, I, I think what we're seeing, you know, because of, let's say, the, the paper shortage, shortage and, you know, capacity at printers and the increase in digital uh, marketing costs seemingly are going up. Um, is that something that you're seeing and, and how might you be dealing with that? Yeah, we are seeing that and it's kind of across almost every category of part of marketing costs, whether it is paper, it's also mailing, which is USPS, it's also delivery, which is FedEx, as far as some pieces of that last mile has been a big issue. And it's also digital. And uh, what we've done is tried to be much more specific and analytics of which part of digital is the most important and gives us the best return and our return on ad spend, as all of you, I'm sure, are looking at. Return on ad spend for us is a critical metric that we are spending a lot of time on. We always have, 
but even more so now because all digital is beginning to grow and it's uh, ebbing and flowing by category of digital. Uh, some growing much faster than others and some shooting up and some not. So we're shifting dollars often between digital outlets. This is kind of a, a loaded question. You must be giving lots of thought to the holistic you know, business, the dollars that you have available for advertising and where best to spend it. Um, you know, when I do my pro a lot of project work and interim and consulting work, you know, one of the things we talk about is, you know, if you're if you have a, a big budget and your boss comes in and says, geez, you know, we're gonna add, you know, another 20% to try and drive more volume, more profitable volume. Do you know as a business where the next best dollar is spent? And what's incredible, you know, is that so many businesses don't really know where that next best dollar is to spend. So, you know, how are you dealing with those challenges? Obviously, that's an everyday discussion. <laughs> Let's just be honest. That's an everyday discussion. We have focused a ton on analytics. We have completely uh, improved and rebuilt our analytics, uh, obviously based on Google Analytics, but others. Um, and we spend a ton on that one subject. What, what is the most productive of our dollars? And it shifts and changes from page search to organic to platforms to email to social to, um, I mean, on and on and on. Uh, affiliates and it goes up and down and up and down and we spend a lot of time on shifting learning and thinking it and we but we now have the data to do so and we spend a lot of time on that in the last two years getting better at doing analytics and making our decisions based on analytics and also learning what's not working and shifting quickly um, because some of the things that we were spending a lot of money on we have now shifted and uh, are going after new ideas and uh, new ways. I mean, we're advertising on all kind of new channels uh, because our customer, as you know, is changing and, and our customer is a younger customer. They're 17, 18 years old and then they have their parents. So we have different consumers that we advertise to. As you were talking, I was just thinking about that. You know, you've, you've got kind of a bifurcated, um, you know, group of customers. I, I imagine a lot of the kids, as you're saying, are, are the consumer, but oftentimes it's the parent that's buying, right? Yep. Yep. Very much. So we still do Facebook because uh, our parents follow Facebook, but obviously Instagram, Pinterest, TikTok, all very, very important things for us, for our demographics. So, uh, and, and another trend that we are really seeing is that the student has a much bigger percent to total in the decision-making. Um, it used to be very, very parent-driven and it's becoming much more of the student. So we are shifting some marketing and digital specifically based upon that analytic that more students are making the decisions than they ever have. Parents still have the last say, of course. Yeah, that's great. Interesting career. Really a great career and uh, your, your current business, uh, uh, which I, I do know, you know about and, and knew a little bit about before you arrived there. Um, you, you've made some uh, outstanding changes, so congratulations. We're down to the uh, end of the show. We do this two-minute drill. Uh, I'll read off uh, seven questions and whatever that first word that comes into your mind uh, would be great. Short and sweet. You ready? Mm -hmm. All right. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Nike. Favorite app on your phone? Noom. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, the last website other than Amazon or OCM that you shopped from? Athleta. Something that you're not good at but that you wish that you were? Directions. Following directions? Driving directions. Oh, driving directions. Okay, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, charitable organization that you're passionate about? 
Runway of Dreams, Fashion for the Disabled. I'm on the board. Okay. And if you had one superpower, what would it be? It would be to understand better what the consumer wants next. Mm, there you go. A little faith popcorn futurist uh, kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, last question. Other than your family, what's your most prized possession? My friends who help me get through anything. That's nice. That's great. We should all have that. And where can people reach out to you on social media if they have questions or maybe not social media? Instagram, WhatsApp. I'm on all of them. You name it, I'm there. LinkedIn. Okay. That's great. Don, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, really good story. Uh, outstanding career. Thank you for uh, spending the time with us. You betcha. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Don Robertson for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, Don was heavily involved in companies that believe in an intense focus on the employees. As we've been seeing these days with the great resignation, employees' needs and wants change over time, and as leaders, we must be ready to adapt, to innovate within our businesses to retain the best employees. Number two, be a good listener, something else that we hear often from guests. You might assume that you have all the answers, but you likely do not. As you get involved in new situations, spend time listening to your team, your peers, your management, so that you can, over time, develop your approach within the business. And number three, your customers' needs change over time, so be sure that you develop strong life cycle marketing tactics. In the case of the college market, freshmen have different needs than seniors, and they have different needs once they graduate, but you can still offer them products that meet their changing lifestyles. Personalization, segmentation, and targeting are all crucial elements in a good marketing plan. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.